Thank you for listening to the Smoke Hole Sessions. They were inspired by my new book, Smoke Hole, Looking to the Wild in the Time of the Spyglass, which is available from all good bookshops. to imagine being on a raft. It's a dark night and there's people from all corners of the earth on this raft just clinging on, clinging on. And what we all need is a story. And an old man called Yevgeny decides to tell one. The story of the old Hasidic master, the Baal Shem Tov. It's called The Holy Couple. The Baal Shem Tov gathered his people around him in a circle of disciples and he said, next Sabbath, I'm going to show you what Sabbath really is. Or you can imagine the bolt of electricity that went through them and they got ready with the highest of care. They bathed themselves extra long in the ritual pool. They changed into their most wonderful clothes and they turned up especially early at synagogue. And they waited and they waited and they waited. They didn't really see anything particularly auspicious. There was a very ordinary looking guy at the back who was certainly praying with a lot of vim and vinegar, delight and joy, but come on, this is... This is hardly a burning bush. So they felt let down. But afterwards, the Baal Shem Tov gathered his disciples up in his study. And it was from there they could peer down onto that ramshackle little house that the poor man they'd seen earlier lived in. They saw him walk into his wife. Oh, good Sabbath, my sweet wife, he said, again full of joy. She replied in a restful and a holy Sabbath to you, dearest husband. And the students heard the husband and wife singing together and the words moving out gladly into the dark. And when they'd finished that, the husband said to his wife, Sweetheart, let us make Kiddush. But they were broke. They were utterly skint. They had no money for wine. So the wife placed two tiny rolls on the table and they made Kiddush over them. Then the wife spoke. And for the fish course, I have something very special. She stood and she brought a small platter of beans to the table. Well, they made their prayers. They ate a spoonful of the humble stuff. Do you know what? Their faces just started to glow with delight. The old man sang some of the ancient songs. Then it was time for the soup course. Well, you know what they're going to be eating by now. They took another spoon of beans and smiled at each other. <laughs> what a lovely Sabbath soup. They took a third spoonful in the place of the meat and the fourth, the dessert. And in great merriment, the poor man spoke. Come, my sweetest one, let us dance to celebrate the Holy Sabbath. And so they both got up and began to dance about their table, laughing and laughing with joy. At that moment, in the dark of the study, each of the disciples felt an immense happiness rise within their hearts. And the Baal Shem Tov whispered, You are experiencing Sabbath joy. So close to the joy this holy couple are experiencing. You should know it was not simple food they tasted, but the Sabbath itself. And Yevgeny 
called out to his God. Is that not a love story? And we, on the raft, in the dark, we quietly weep. I'm delighted today to be talking to my friend Ariel Berger. He is a rabbi, uh, he is a wonderful artist, and he is author of a book, a book called Witness, Lessons from Ellie Wiesel's Classroom. If somehow you don't know who Ellie Wiesel is, you've got to find out. He was a writer, an activist, Nobel laureate, and Holocaust survivor. And his student for a long time has been my mate, Ariel. So we're going to be talking together today in this time of great crisis in Gaza. And Ariel has done a lot of conflict resolution work with Palestinians and Jewish peoples alike. So let's go meet him. Let's go meet Ariel. Ariel, so good to see your face, sir. Thanks, Martin. Thank you so much for agreeing to have a conversation with me for a little while. It feels today, as so often, that the world is just utterly mad. It feels mad. And interestingly, and there's so much for us to talk about, when I read of the madness of the Hasidic masters, it always seems eminently sane. Mm. How are they feeding you? in a moment like this? Well, you're onto something so, so important. There are certain kinds of madness that really do constitute sanity in a world gone mad. Yeah. Um, and that's a theme in many of the Jewish mystical writings that have inspired me. Uh, so my, my teacher, my primary teacher in this stuff was Elie Wiesel, who was a Holocaust survivor and witness and human rights activist and Nobel Prize winner. And an author and teacher, and and he would talk about this, how when the world goes mad, the proper response, the most effective response is not to reach for a, a certain kind of contrived sanity, but it's to enter a, a better kind of madness. And so I read stories that talk about madness, the turkey prince, the prince who sat under the table without clothes, clucking and pecking at crumbs on the floor, thinking he was a turkey, and other stories of the, the tainted grain where an entire country goes mad because they eat this terrible infected wheat and the king has to respond to that kind of madness. It reminds me that there are solutions or at least directions that we haven't considered. That, that's, uh -huh. I think, how it helps me the most. I, I always wonder, I've internalized the question now, what's missing from the conversation? What's missing from the, the responses of the world to issues like hunger and conflict and homelessness and environmental issues? We're obviously not finding the right responses. And so the question, what is missing, becomes, for me, becomes a gateway mm. to a lot of possibility and a lot of openness to the marginal. In the old Greek myths, the god of the storytellers is Hermes. And Hermes is always present in a conversation when a third possibility reveals itself that no one could have anticipated until the moment. And so if you have run out of any track that your logic can take you on or your own individuated imagination, you would go to a statue of Hermes, interestingly, often in a marketplace, not out in a in a desert place but right where the people are you'd whisper your question you know hermes please give me some third directive you turn around and walk away and the first thing that you heard was the response from hermes and it could be you know a child it could be a fool it could be some piece of music but in some way, the return message, the echolocation from Hermes was this first thing. And I love the ecstasy of that. And I love the supposedly foolishness of that, the, the non-logic of it. And one of the reasons why I'm such a, 
a fan of what you're doing is you're in this, it seems to me, this very interesting place where you have tradition in one hand and innovation in the other, and they are they're, they're useful counterweights in your life. They are not opposed to each other, but they give a little traction and a little rub that makes a life worth interesting. As you've been saying a lot, I know, actually it's okay to be a, a character of faith and all you do is ask questions. There's a tremendous liberation in that. Yeah, and that's that's the ultimate expression of faith, really, from a certain perspective, is the openness to questions. You know, being dogmatic is really a, a sign of a faithlessness or or such anxiety that your faith is fragile, that you have to bolster it with many walls. Um, I still have some of that in me, certainly. I have ancestral stuff around that. But my life has taught me very well to embrace questions and to become more comfortable with those, those really sometimes shocking paradoxes or tensions, creative tensions between values, and, and particularly in the realm of tradition and creativity. Thank mm. you for seeing that, for mm. bearing witness to that in me. It's such a central part of who I am and my life story. And it's such a central part of my life and, and daily experience of life today and it shows up in all kinds of places. It shows up when I read a biblical text, a story in the Bible that's disturbing, you know, that seems immoral, that, that rubs against my moral intuition. So I, I used to get freaked out by that. Now I rub my hands and I'm really gleeful. <laughs> oh, I know this is going to be rich, meaty, opening for conversation. Um, I just spent time with, with a, a dear friend yesterday in one of those texts. Um, he reached out to me because he read a text. He read the story of King Saul and mm. King Saul's fall from grace. And his fall from grace happens because he refuses basically to kill people. He refuses to kill people. And then he he loses the, the kingship and David becomes the next king. And it's a, it's a really disturbing story. And we were looking at the subtleties of the text and developing new understandings, even in a one hour phone call, because those moments, whether it's in a traditional text, a sacred text, or or in life, and I have the same experience looking at the world, how the hell can that be happening? Why have we not learned anything as a mm. human species? How can it be that what I'm seeing contradicts my deepest sense of reality and, and possibility and right? So I still, I, ha I have feelings about that, but part of me knows that that's an invitation. And I think this is very much one of the things I connect with in your work so much that I've shared with some of my students at this point is the idea that the responses that we need come from the periphery. They come from the margins. Mm. And, and that, that peripheral vision that you talk about is so important. And it's part of the same question. What's missing here that we can't get these things right? And when I'm comfortable, I don't ask that question. I'm sort of complacent and everything <laughs> makes sense. When it doesn't make sense anymore and the world is falling apart, there's an invitation, a painful invitation that I have some responsibility to. Yes. There are two, two phrases that come to mind. One is uh, Hindu, joyful participation in the sorrows of the world. Joyful participation in the sorrow. I've chewed on that for years. And another one from a character that these days, in my line of work at least, is always getting dragged through the mud simply, really, because of the success of his endeavour, which is the mythologist Joseph Campbell. Campbell's an easy target. Uh, but Campbell always said this. He said, we all gag on true doctrine. Mm. We all gag on true doctrine. And I notice it in my own work that there are certain stories that I could repeat on cruise control, probably for the rest of my life. And because they chime with the spirit of the age, everything is easy. But that's no kind of life. You've, you've got to dig in. You and I, it's, it's interesting to think about it. We're roughly the same age. You and I would have grown up on similar stories. You know, I've grown up my whole life with what Christians call the Old Testament, at least. Those stories were the first. They are my prime material. I used to lie awake at night and I heard my dad learning Hebrew next door. 
when he was trying to become a theologian. In fact, we were at the table a few years ago and there's a, there's a very interesting book at the moment by a writer called Tom Holland called Dominion. And he puts forth a fairly credible argument that certainly in the West and in Britain and the rest of it, we're kind of morally, we're secular Christians. We're Christians without knowing we're Christians in a way. Mm -hmm. But my dad, I remember, slamming his fist down on the table said to me, in our hearts, we are Jewish. Mm. So I don't mean that as any disrespect whatsoever to Jewish culture. I say it as a, as a strange act of love. It's beautiful. Uh, and it's just something that's been in my life for a long time. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is a very odd experience happened to me about five years ago. I went through a prolonged period of private catastrophe, private catastrophe out in the world. No one would have known. But behind the scenes, my 40s were terribly difficult and I experienced a kind of invasion of the heart during that time by this figure, the Baal Shem Tov. Mm -hmm. And what's so weird is that I don't know, I have no recollection of where these stories arrived from, how they arrived, other than they immediately started to irrigate into my own heart. Mm. And, uh, you know, not knowing much about the Ukraine or Poland or, or any of it or anything that's going on. They were just so magical in strange ways, both irrational but very, very direct. I've just wondered about how that happened at the moment, a moment where I had to make a new covenant with grief. I had to make a new covenant with grief. The teacher arrived. He's around. He still he does that. Really? Yeah. He's he's um, I mean, we're talking about a man who died in in seventeen hundred, and during the latter part of his life, walked around the Carpathian Mountains and told stories. And twelve years after he died, there was what we call the Hasidic movement, this revival mm -hmm. movement in Eastern Europe, this mystical movement that that emphasized fervor and friendship and the idea that whoever you are, you have a contribution to make to the world and to the spiritual world. You don't have to be a great scholar and you can serve God through singing or dancing or eating or <laughs> acts of kindness or acts of creativity. And there's a wonderful story. I'm sure you know of, about the Baal Shem Tov, about the little shepherd boy. I'm working up for a long time on illustrating this story. It's, it's, it's posing some challenges to me as an illustrator, but the story is it's Yom Kippur, which is traditionally the, the day of atonement, the holiest day of the year, and everyone's in the synagogue praying, and the Baal Shem Tov is the prayer leader. In the middle of the highest, most important, exalted, formal part of the prayer service, a shepherd boy walks into the synagogue, and he's standing there looking around, and he's surrounded by men in the men's section and women in the women's section, and the men are imposing, and they have their prayer shawls over their heads, and they're swaying in prayer. And he wants to contribute something, so he starts blowing on his flute, his shepherd's pipes, in the synagogue. And of course, you're not supposed to play instruments traditionally on that day, nor are you supposed to play instruments in the synagogue. And so everyone starts shushing him and yelling, and he keeps going, he keeps playing the instrument because that's his gift and that's his contribution to, to God and, and to the moment. And everyone's shushing him. And the Baal Shem Tov, who's at the front leading the prayer services, stops. He turns around and he says to everyone, do you know, the whole time we've been praying, our prayers have remained down here in the room that we're praying in. They didn't ascend to where they're supposed to go. And it wasn't until this boy started playing his flute with such passion and innocence and sincerity that the prayers went up. He's the one who opened the gates of prayer for us. And the Baal Shem Tov somehow saw that and carried that to people from all walks of life. And, you know, the, the radical inclusivity of that and the radical invitation to creativity in that was enough to spark a movement. It was enough to create a, a, a really a, a continental movement mm. and, and in a relatively short period of time. And he's still around. And in some way, his echoes, the echoes of his voice and his stories and that message that you you have a place here 
I believe very strongly, and I've experienced it also, are still very, very present. Could you tell me a little bit about the rabbinical relationship to imagination? I think you may have called it rabbinical fantasy or imagining. That's a very interesting place because so much of what people ostensibly think religion is about is, you know, rules, black and white, very rigid modes of behavior. And if you don't behave, that's what happens. But there seems to be in the tradition that you come from, you know, wonderful, imaginative, philosophical room for maneuvers. Yeah, there is definitely a perception, particularly of Judaism in in the West, that Judaism is a a Western tradition, Mm. be a legalistic tradition that comes from somewhere that, that, you know, that was really a, a, a polemical device uh, used by St. Paul and others to differentiate Christianity from Judaism. It didn't emerge from nowhere. Judaism certainly does have a legalistic tradition, but it's accompanied by the story tradition. And actually, when Mm -hmm. we talk about the rabbinic tradition, we talk about two words, two modalities. One is called halakha, which means the the walking, which is the way we live, Uh, the laws, the practices, the norms, the, uh, the questions about how to bring God consciousness into our eating and our sex lives and the bathroom and our business dealings and building community and you know all aspects of life. It's very practical. And we talk about Agada, which is the storytelling tradition. Uh, and the main difference between them is that ultimately there has to be a decision about the law, right? If you, if you want to be in community, you don't want some people keeping the Sabbath on Saturday and some people keeping it on Sunday <laughs> or Friday. So you need some uniformity. There are some agreements and consonants there. Whereas in the realm of story, it's wide open and you have all of these stories and legends, um, questions of, of cosmology and, and myth, really imaginative conversations that are never resolved. Just the opinions, the differences of opinion coexist. So it's a wonderful, playful aspect of of the tradition that many people in in the West really haven't had access to. And the other thing to say here is that you were talking about growing up with the, what I call the Torah. So Mm. the Torah really, and we're actually approaching the holiday that celebrates the receiving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. So the tradition, the earliest, oldest traditional story about what happened there was that Moshe, Moses, was up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And he received the Torah, but he received a different kind of Torah during the day and during the nights. Yeah. And during the day, he received the written Torah, what became scripture, the Old Testament, you know, and and the things that are in the book. And at night, he received what's called the oral tradition, the unwritten tradition, the unscripted tradition, which is how do you read between the lines and what are the methodologies for, for unpacking and interpreting and the beautiful hermeneutical tools for making sense of what's written on the page. Because if you look at what's written on the page by itself, it often doesn't make sense, even just in the simplest ways. It's contradictory. There are extra words. There are words missing. And it doesn't make moral sense sometimes. An eye for an eye, really? Everyone knows that doesn't make sense. Our human intuition tells us it doesn't Mm -hmm. make sense. But the oral tradition, which comes also all the way back from Sinai, says it doesn't mean take someone's eye out. That's crazy. It means you pay so that they can get back up on their feet and build their lives again. You pay damages for the for the damage you've caused. You're reminding me, as you say this, Ariel, of what I often talk about pastoral and prophetic tradition. The prophetic is the stark, strange bark of instruction that, you know, someone comes down from a mountain and issues the big news. But the pastoral is the thing that brings it into the human experience mm-hmm. and, and of Clearly, you know, it's classically oral. I was reading about the very thing you've told me today and I I got the giggles because I suddenly thought in modern terms, this is Moses getting the audible version. You know how (laughs) you've got the written, but now you've got audible as well and everyone listens to him in their their car. But um, that's a fascinating thing for me. Now, to someone outside of Jewish culture, the, the word rabbi, we tend to think of it in a synagogue setting. Could you sort of explode that if it needs to be exploded? What does your life as a rabbi look like? 
Well, I'll start with the original definition. The original thing was was Moshe himself was uh-huh. the person who the the ultimate prophet, a, a person of great humility, a stutterer, someone who struggled with speech, who was reluctant to take the the mantle of of prophecy or being a messenger of God, and needed his brother to sort of walk with him to feel the confidence he needed to confront Pharaoh and work towards the liberation of a tribe of slaves, and led a people through the desert for 40 years and the people gave him tremendous grief and we all know the stories but after sinai he had to wear a mask over his face because his his face was shining so brightly that it was blinding by the way that's the the famous michelangelo statue of moses with horns and the idea that jews have horns which is still a sort of an anti-jewish trope yeah that yeah. people i know have experienced in you know southern the southern united states it comes from a mistranslation of that that verse that says that Moses' face was shining with rays of light. The word for rays was mistranslated into horns. What it really was was rays of light that were so intense and so powerful that he had to wear a veil or a mask. And later on, he transmitted that kind of spiritual energy in some way to his main student, Joshua. And Joshua transmitted to others, to the elders and then the, the prophets. And so the original idea of a rabbi was somebody who has a hands of the teacher placed on the head to receive a transmission of the spirit of God and a sort of powerful, charismatic transmission of spiritual power and capability that you could then use to serve a community. And that happened from generation to generation in an unbroken chain. We actually know who those people were until the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And then it was cut off. We lost the ability to to do that, partly because we were not in our ancestral land. We were exiled from the land of Israel. And so the loss of indigeneity meant a loss of spiritual connection and power. There was an attempt to revive that much, much later in the 1600s, I think, or the 1500s, when Jews, some Jews returned to the land of Israel. There were Jews all along, but there was a community in Tzfat, in the city of the mystics. And there was a real sincere attempt to bring this back, bring this kind of spiritual transmission back. But in the meantime, they said, well, we don't have the real deal. So, you know, we'll, we'll use the term rabbi. It basically will mean a teacher, someone who has permission to teach. And that's what it means today. Right permission to teach. So many rabbis are synagogue rabbis, but many rabbis like me are not. And my life is really learning, teaching, counseling, and helping where I can, and and creating. I see my my creative activities as part of being a Jew and a person and a and a soul and a and a rabbi in some way. And you know it's all part of the same kind of increasingly integrated um, contribution or manifestation of what's inside. So I feel like when I'm painting, I'm as much of a rabbi as when I'm teaching a traditional text. Ah, now could you tell me about the art? Tell me, tell me, and anybody that's interested in looking at it, it's on your website, isn't it? There's quite a few paintings and illustrations that are up there, Ariel. Could, t- how did this come about? Well, it started when I was very, very young. I just loved to draw. It was very simple and unselfconscious and... I would lose myself for hours in drawing when I was growing up. There was nothing formal about it. I have almost no formal training. It was just a place where I found flow. I found uh, eternity, a loss of time, mm. and um, and real joy and pleasure in in the world of imagination. It started really with drawing superheroes and elves and you know robots and things like that. It was really world building in some way. As I got a little bit older, I was building characters in a world, in a couple of different worlds and consistently. Um, and then what I just discovered over time, which was so fascinating and still is very mysterious to me is uh, there are artists who begin with a concept and then they try to, to manifest that concept. I almost never do that. When I'm illustrating a story, I'll start with a story, but most of the time, I'm letting my hand express the wisdom that my hand has that my mind doesn't have, and I'll create something. And then afterwards, I'll look at it and I'll sort of ponder and say, what are you trying to tell me? And I'll discover things that it's trying to tell me. And often those things are messages that I need to learn, and I couldn't learn any other way. 
Wow. What's it like for you in your writing? Is it a similar kind of thing? Yeah, and I've been painting a lot a lot longer than I've been writing. You do the ink drawings in the books I've seen. Are yeah, they? yeah. Yeah, you know what? The and in front of they're charcoal. They're just they're charcoal. Little, little charcoal sketches. Usually I do all the drawings for a book in one session in a day or an afternoon and then it's gone again. Uh, and I'll do one quick idea like you see where the hand is leading me and then go from there. I lived in a tent for four years, just listening, really. And when I was in the tent, it never really occurred to me to, to write much. I didn't really even have a journal, but I drew and I drew and I drew and I drew and I watched, I watched weather patterns moving across this valley. And I was excited by the exhilaration in the change of the seasons and the movement of animals. And I always thought if I ever did write, I'd somehow want to aspire to that kind of nutrition, that kind of wildness in it. However, I think there are some things in life that I was born with, but the ability to write was not necessarily one of them. So I think the thing that, <laughs> the thing that keeps me writing is the fact that it is always clear as a writer where you can get better. Mm -hmm. And so... I I had a you know a, a very significant teacher in my life of course very integrated into your life and very consciously is you know Ellie Wiesel and and that whole work I'd love to talk about it but I also was lucky enough to be in the presence of the poet Robert Bly and James Hillman and Coleman Barks and and all sorts of enormous figures and always as an artist the rub in that kind of uh, being kind of wired up to that kind of voltage <laughs> is quite where you find, you know, your own wingspan within it without having to do the typical boring punk rock move of killing all your inspirations. That's a cheap shot. It's a cheap shot. And too it, easy. It, yeah, it's too easy. And so I think in my own work, the... I, the, I think the role of a teacher is not always quite the same thing as the role of the artist. There's sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I'm in a stage in my own life through one of the blessings of lockdown was that I was, you know, temporarily retired from too much public work, from civic... My, what I really do regard, actually, as civic duty. If I'm invited to do something... I have to have a pretty serious reason not to do it because spiritually, unfashionable as that word is, I feel it's, you know, an imperative to get out there and bear witness to the, the few talents that I actually have. But the artistic side of me, which is hermetic, surly, can't stand people, can't stand can't stand being anything required of me, has suddenly, like this has happened to millions of people, has had this very unexpected mid-career moment of, of mass introversion. And now, as I see the wheels turning of industry and the fact that actually I'm going to be out there again, I realise, I don't know about you, Ariel, I've barely raised my voice for about a year. And when I'm in public, I, I don't, I, I'm being very proud. I don't usually work with microphones. So I, I, I just speak loudly. Mm -hmm. And all of the adrenaline that's going to require, the pacing up and down, the thinking on your feet, the stand and deliver. Right now, I have no idea if I'll be able to pull it off again. Mm. And I'm curious about the being that, emerges from this and I won't place myself under pr any kind of pressure to replicate where I was before. Right. And and I wonder if if the, the bear after hibernation will come out and start giving talks in a way that wasn't wasn't there before. If there's more of that kind of hermetic wildness that you can bring to public engagement now in a way that maybe maybe people will be a little more open to and maybe it doesn't matter if they are or not. It's just <laughs> the next step in evolution. Yeah. I I think, like you, I'm sure, I've been asked many times about does COVID and lockdown constitute an initiatory event? 
Is it an initiatory event, having led wilderness rites of passage for a long time? And the answer, of course, is yes and no. The yesness of it is that it has involved terrific loss of life. And as soon as anything like that is happening and an abrupt change of social behaviour, it's initiatory in tone. But unfortunately, what defines an initiation, or not defines, but the hopeful response is it at its end is what you would call, quote, unquote, successful. In other words, a rite of passage has the word passage in it. It's leading somewhere. It's not arbitrary. And, and I'm not sure yet quite what the consequence of this thing is other than I presume people will come out of it with radically different propositions. As Wendell Berry always says, a big question is not usually solved by a big answer. That's that oral tradition thing. It's these little threads. And for me, that's part of what's happening now is people want me to make a, a big answer. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't want to. Yeah, there's also a difference between an answer and a response. Yes, yes, please say more about that. Well, an answer is, as, as Professor Wiesel used to say often, an answer is an end. It's the end of the sentence or it's the end of the conversation. Or maybe it's perceived as the end of a question. But a response keeps everything open. Uh, there are certain questions that we can never answer. You know, in his life and, and in many of our lives, in some ways, at a remove, the question of why why the Holocaust happened or why did God allow it to happen or how could human beings do terrible things in general to other human beings is a question that if anyone tries to answer, it's really almost offensive. You know, and there were people who said the Holocaust happened because X, Y, or Z, you know, because the Jew, there were rabbis who said the Jewish community wasn't religious enough. That's incredibly offensive, not just to humans, but to any idea of, of God or divine justice or anything, right? It doesn't, there's nothing that can excuse the murder of 1 million children, nothing. So an answer is offensive, but a response might be because it happened, we have to make sure it never happens again to anyone. And that's our response to the Holocaust. It's not an answer. The question is still there. The question is equally profound and and uh, disturbing and urgent and unresolved, but we have a way to go forward. And I think when you talk about initiation, the other thing that I think of is the role of elders, the role of people who have been through an initiation before. And, and that relates to the move that you were talking about of not not killing your teachers, mm-hmm. right? Not not rebelling in that way, that punk rock way that you said, but instead navigating reverence and gratitude for what you can receive and also finding your own voice. And as a society, I, I worry about that. I worry about coming out of the, the tunnel or the passage of COVID and realizing that we're really back where we started because we didn't do the work or we didn't listen to the voices of our elders. I'm not sure how to capture that voice now. I, I think about that a lot. It's part of why I study old traditions and old stories and old texts every day. But but I wonder how to project that outward so that people have access to that old stuff without any of the trappings or the baggage of, of, of shoulds or oughts or guilt or expectations, but just the blessing of being in the presence of old, old stories of ancient things of an ancient understanding of the world that looks so different from our modern technical and technocratic understanding of the world. And I, I'm yearning for that. Yeah. You know, one thing that we learn from mythology all over the world is that mythological time is not the same thing as that human 4-4 frantic tempo. There's a spaciousness to it. So as I... I'm sure you've got phrases now where you think, oh, God, I'm repeating this for the 900th time, you know, chant along. But one of the things I have said ad infinitum is that many of the stories I think we need now have arrived somewhere between the last two to 5,000 years ago. Mm. But it doesn't mean that they haven't been auditioning perfectly for this moment. And we are so caught up in the mantra and the polemics of 2021 we are so against the notion of gagging on the doctrine that Campbell talked about, of dealing with roughage. But the world is nothing but roughage. 
It's filled with beauty, but the passport for our times is a lot of it is paradox and uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And I'm perpetually asked, you know, will you create, could you create a story for now as if sort of, you know, one man hunched over a laptop is going to do that? I can't possibly do that because what, what you'd be left with is a kind of cut and paste, a cut and paste story that at its best felt like a rather feeble Hollywood movie. <laughs> but these older stories, you know, the Sumerian, the Greek, Jewish traditions, they don't shy away. You know, my counsel for everyone at the moment is, is don't shy away from the weird, teach the weird. Move into the weird. Don't be afraid of danger. You just can't be. Because we've seen what, you know, in, in, in the tradition of my family, we've seen what white, fat American Jesus looks like. It's not good. It's not good. It's not good. Go back to the, go back to the, the, troubled, the troubled burning wheel that that actually comes from, and you're into another territory. So... Um, what what have you done with your time over the last year? I know you're a you're a dad and you know family man. I'm a dad to young adults, so that's been a lot of my time and focus is learning new ways of being a parent, and the humbling that happens in the presence of teenage and young adult children who are blossoming, and really becoming themselves in so many beautiful ways, in some ways that are challenging. Um, really learning how to how to navigate that with more grace and more lightness. And in general, you know, I, I, I do a pilgrimage every year. This year we couldn't go because of COVID, but I do a pilgrimage to the gravesite of a great Hasidic master and storyteller, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, mm. who's buried in the Ukraine. And many people come for this pilgrimage from around the world. It's a profoundly transformative experience every time I've been there I think 21 times and each time is completely different and completely new and radical. And it's not usually bells and whistles, like direct, you know, revelations and claims about things I can put into words. It's more, it's more subtle than that, but every once in a while, there's something that arises to, to the level of consciousness, something articulated. And so one time I was sitting there for hours, which is part of what you do when you're there praying, meditating, writing in a journal, thinking, studying a text, and then praying from the text, turning turning something you learn into a prayer. This is a practice in that tradition. When you, when you read a story that you really love, that really hits you, turn it into a prayer or turn it into a poem of yearning, somehow to integrate it, internalize it more deeply. So I was sitting there for hours and I was dozing off at a certain point and I heard a voice in my head that said, it was clearly a voice that had laughter in it. It said, it was something like, can you be intense and also light? (laughs) Now you have to understand that this tradition, many of the followers of this particular master are very intense because there's a real awareness of mortality. There's a, a, a kind of holy and humble ambition to grow as a person and to overcome the things I need to overcome in myself and to evolve into the person I need to be. That's, that's serious business. But, but I really felt like the, the reminder uh, to have humor was really so important, such an important learning for me. I've been very serious since I was a kid. So with all the imagination stuff and the drawing and everything, which was you know, life-saving, I also always came back to some awareness of like, what's this all for? You know, what are we all here for? And that's a that's a very helpful thing in many ways, but it's also pretty serious and heavy. So that's what this period has been about for me in many ways, is leaning into that lightness. But then also it's been a period of taking the teachings, particularly of, of Elie Wiesel and the teachings that he held dear and figuring out ways of sharing them. So I just created a, a project this year during COVID with several other people to really inspire and empower and nurture the next generation of moral leadership and and moral, not moralizing, not ideological, and leadership, not necessarily formal leadership, but really getting into the business of 
what I think of as the mechanics of moral transformation. That's one of those phrases that I use a lot, the mechanics of moral transformation. It's easy to talk about. It's hard to do. What's the real work? What happens to a person when they hear a story that changes their nervous system a little bit? What happens there? How do we cultivate our capacity for compassion and kindness and justice and courage? Compassion and courage especially have been on my mind in this period. How do we develop our compassion and our courage and put our courage in the service of our compassion to stand up and do the right thing without being self-righteous? How do we maintain our passion and our humility? How do we have moral ferocity about the world and also reflection and self-interrogation? These are the kinds of things I've been working on with a group of people. When you, you you get into the terrain of, you know, words like ethics and morality, and for me, it gets into sort of simpler language sometimes of, you know, I need to know how to behave. <laughs> I need to know how to behave. And that move from a dream into a vision, it's just occurring to me now, the move from a, dream, a dreaming into a visioning, and suddenly you're into something, you know, you can't build, I'm a big fan of, of longing, I've been looking at one of your pieces of art, uh, The Knights of the Broken Heart, Breslov. I'm definitely in that. That's where I live. Mm. And on the other hand, you can't build your whole life entirely on longing. That's a little bit like uh, Odysseus trying to get home. It's the song of the sirens, the music of the spears, what in Irish myth they call the music of what is. And it is so powerful you you'll suddenly you know you you forget how to eat you forget how to to move out into the world that's right in front of you you forget to feed your cat in my or my concern at this particular second but I, i'm going round in circles a little bit but it's it's something to do and it's something you were very kind actually i know that you read smoke hole the book that i've got coming out and there was something in there in about around behavior in the way that you wrote the you know, the, the few words about it. I suppose what I wanted to ask is for someone so already well settled within a very specific tradition, with an extraordinary teacher and a tangible relationship to him and to that work, you're clearly open to wider stories. You know, you've discovered my stuff and others. What's all that about? I, I want to go back for a second to something you said about yearning and longing. Yeah, because I, I live there too. And in, in your first question was about the something about the Hasidic uh, imagination and path. I think one of the most important things I've gotten from that, and that was not how I grew up. By the way, I grew up very traditionally Jewish, you know, observant and religious and all of that, um, with some complexity in my family. But I didn't discover the Hasidic part, which was the the revolutionary movement from from two hundred years ago, until I was eighteen, nineteen, twenty, and and, and on. And that became the, the real kind of lens through which I experience all of the other stuff in my tradition. And, and the most important thing I think I've learned is that yearning is really important and longing is really important and it's countercultural and it's uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable to allow yourself to yearn and long and have your heart break. It's really necessary. And the extent to which you have joy is the extent to which you can maintain that yearning space. So the cultivation of joy, which is very central to Hasidic teachings, there's a lot of dancing, there's a lot of mystical dancing, there's a lot of singing, wordless melodies. Elie Wiesel told me he always had one of those melodies in his mind. So if you see a video of him talking to the United Nations or something, he probably had a Hasidic melody somewhere in his mind while he was doing that. It gave him a lot of strength. And, And joy is a really important emphasis in that tradition. But it's not just so that you can be happy and jump up and down. It's so that you can then do the hard work of heartbreak without moving into despair territory. I think about that a lot right now. I think about it today in looking at the news and mm. what's my responsibility to joy as a vessel, as a container for the heartbreak. Um, the openness, you know, I think is related to heartbreak. Um, I think that when I'm armored up, One of my favorite images from the Bible is when young David goes to fight Goliath. And we all have the image of David and and Goliath, but right before the actual encounter, the actual battle, 
there's, I think, an even more important moment when King Saul gives David Saul's armor, yeah. the king's armor. And it's a mark of incredible respect and, and gratitude because this kid is volunteering to fight a giant who everyone else is freaked out about and scared of. But David takes off that armor because it doesn't fit him. And he goes to encounter the giant without any armor. And I've drawn and painted that image for years over and over again in different ways because it captures a lot of this, this question for me of, am I willing to take off the armor? And what helps me to do that? And what's the right pace to take off armor? And where is it actually appropriate and safe to do so? And where do I need some armor to maintain my sanity or well-being or safety? And where do I keep the armor a little bit too long? And where am I still wearing armor from years ago that I don't need anymore? And, and where are we as a society armored up? And where are the places where we can be vulnerable and tender and soft? And where's our, how can we imagine a politics of tenderness that allows our heartbreak to meet one another's heartbreaks and have a different kind of conversation? So I, for me, the, the closeness, not the openness to other cultures and other stories, but the, the closed mindedness is really kind of a departure from traditional Judaism. Like you look uh -huh. at the rabbis from every generation, they were incredibly involved and open with the world. There's an idea that everything in the world is an expression of the divine. That's really the, the fundamental, if there's like a one-liner an elevator speech about Judaism, it's monotheism. That doesn't just mean there's one God and the other gods are wrong. It means there's only one God and everything is part of that oneness. And our job is to identify that oneness and navigate the, the multiplicity and the oneness in, in a kind of dance. So why would we ever be closed? We can be, we can be critical and you know, dis, discerning. I think discernment is important because there are forces out there that are not healthy. There are forces that are, you know, that are drilling for oil right now that are not healthy. And there are people who are who are abusing other people right now. It's not healthy. We have to fight those things. But at the same time, we have to hold some consciousness that it's all part of one story. So to me, the, the place where that closed-mindedness comes up is when we're really armored up. And when we allow ourselves to open our hearts, we don't have to be afraid of other stories and other traditions. They're beautiful and they're wonderful. And I've learned more about my own tradition from reading Rumi than I have from reading my own tradition because there's a kind of echoing or a kind of reflection that happens in that dialogue that's so helpful. I've had roadblocks in my own Jewish spiritual journey that nothing helped me get around other than something from another tradition. Mm. In one case, in one case, it was Rumi. So Ariel, as we're sitting here today, Gaza's on our mind, Palestine is on our mind, Jerusalem's on our mind, it's all on our mind uh, and on our hearts. Is there anything that you would want to say or, or what are you thinking about in a moment like this? Yeah, thank you for the question. There's so much to say and so much to explore and, and really swim in about heartbreak and justice and the history of the conflict, which is very it is actually complex. Uh, there are memes going around on social media now that argue that it's actually not complex, it's very simple. And, you know, it's not true. This is actually complex. And the complexity is difficult, but important to embrace. And what I wanna share right now, I think is very, is one very simple thing, which is I'm in touch with a lot of people on the ground who are peacemakers. They're the people who gather at crossroads across the country, Israelis and Palestinians together handing out flowers to passers-by. There are the people who engaged in a fast day, a day of fasting and mourning and yearning for peace together, and people who create circles for dialogue and circles for connection through song and through dance and through chanting and drumming. And all of these out-of-the-box approaches to peacemaking at a grassroots level that you don't hear about in the news. And what I want to share is really simple. As we are reading about the conflict and as we're consuming news, we have to ask ourselves one simple question. Is what I'm reading going to help the peacemakers or not? 
is what I'm reading going to help the peacemakers or not? Is it going to elevate them? Is it giving me a more entrenched position and positioning in regard to the conflict? There's so much misinformation online right now, and there's so much misinformation even in major news outlets. And if you pay attention to the news in the New York Times and the Guardian and so on, it's, it's basically the same coverage and the same story for the last 20 years at least. It's just an iterating of the same story and the same story over and over again. When the fact is that things on the ground are changing, some important things are changing. There, there wasn't a grassroots peace movement like this 20 years ago. Some of my friends helped to create it. The, the latest news as of today is that the new coalition, the new Israeli government coalition, is a joint coalition which includes an Arab party, the Ra'am party, for the first time in Israel's history. That's an amazing step forward. That's like, you know, in, in America, if you had a Tea Party and Bernie Sanders coalition in the government, <laughs> it's, it's radical. I mean, it just, it's, it was unthinkable until recently. That's a, that's a huge, and it's not clear that it will last. You know, coalition politics in Israel are intense and very, very um, protean and there's a deep insecurity about the process, but it's it's a very vigorous democratic process. That's the kind of thing that you won't see in the headlines. So I just want to encourage people to ask that question. How do we push beyond the superficial reading of events there in such a way that we can help the peacemakers? Because there are peacemakers on the ground doing important work. And none of the peacemakers I know buy into the mainstream narrative about what's happening in that in that part of the world. They all look at it with much greater nuance and complexity and depth, acknowledging that there are facts, there are historical facts that are well-documented. It's important to know those facts, acknowledging that there are multiple experiences and you can't argue with someone else's experience. And if those experiences tend to contradict, then we have to shift from the realm of front page headlines and policy papers to something that can really help us make some more progress, which is storytelling and singing together and crying together and making art together. And that's what peacemakers are doing on the ground in Israel and Palestine today. And that's so critically important for us to, first of all, to know about, because there's there's some hopefulness in that story and it's real. It's not a mass movement. They're up against major challenges. I don't diminish that in any way, but there's hopefulness in hearing from my friends and and um, and colleagues who are on the ground organizing some of these events, and they need our support. So, um, you know, maybe there's a way that I can share some of the organizations doing the good work on the ground um, for listeners. Uh, but at the very least, to know that the story we're hearing, the old story, the repeat, the repetitive story that we're hearing, is not sufficient and generally not very accurate and certainly not helpful to the people who are actually yearning for peace on both sides and all sides of this conflict and who are making progress. I want people to know that there is progress. It's delicate, it's fragile, it needs our support and our help, like a little flame that if we blow too hard, it blows out. And if we don't provide enough oxygen, it blows out. And we need to find that delicate balance and the headlines are not helping us do that, but we can do it through our own efforts and our own storytelling and our own curiosity and trusting that the heart of people in that part of the world, the hearts of many people are yearning, are filled with yearning for peace. Ariel, thank you so much for your time. And I wish, you know, nothing but safety and goodness to you and your kiddies and your beloved. And I do hope we get to do this again. Me too. Thanks, Martin. I want to finish today's session with uh, a poem by the great Yehuda Amakai. It's called An Arab Shepherd is Searching for His Goat on Mount Zion. An Arab shepherd is searching for his goat on Mount Zion. And on the opposite mountain, I am searching for my little boy. An Arab shepherd and a Jewish father both in their temporary failure. Our voices meet above the sultan's pool in the valley between us. 
Neither of us wants the child or the goat to get caught in the wheels of the terrible Hadgaya machine. Afterward, we found them amongst the bushes and our voices came back inside us, laughing and crying. Searching for a goat or a son has always been the beginning of a new religion in these mountains. Thanks to Ben Adicott for producing Smoke Hole. Don't forget to check out my new book, Smoke Hole, Looking to the Wild at the Time of the Spyglass, available in all good bookshops. And bad too. Ha, 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 ha.